0: Chapter 23, Mammoth Riders By the use of balloons, it takes them six days to reach the lower ice fields of the northern states of Icelandic. In total, the trip is just under 1,200 miles from Cortesh, the capital of the elves, to the capital of the ice dwarves, dwarves' rest. Approaching the northern border of Upper Kelsic, the territory of the giants, Reuben and Beth can't help feeling a little disappointed in the lack of appearance of a single giant. Frange the Powerful and his family were at the Princess's coronation, but it was their hope to see more throughout the Land of Giants. Nearing the southern border of the snow-covered country, the winds of a powerful blizzard forces their balloons down to the surface. Landing a few thousand feet from the border of the northern states of Icelandic, they step out onto the frozen, snow-covered ground. Immediately, Artemis whips out a few heavy snowcoats insulated with the fur of woolly mammoths. She hands one to Beth as they make their way over to find Reuben and Than, who are the only three unprepared for the cold. Beth gives Artemis a dirty look, wondering if the princess really expects her to wear the fur of a helplessly murdered animal. Don't worry, the mammoths remain unharmed, simply sheared like the wool of a sheep. Artemis explains, knowing the girl's thoughts might be similar to those of the nature-loving gnomes. "'Are you two really disappointed you didn't get to see more giants on the way over here?' Than asks as he puts on the perfectly fitting snowcoat. "'I fight for all races, Than. You know that,' Reuben explains, pulling his coat on the edges to stop above his forearms and waist, proving to be too small for the human. "'Sorry, Reuben. Their dwarven maid Artemis shrugs with an innocent smile. Beth covers her mouth, laughing at Reuben's humorous appearance in the dwarven-made coat, but her laughter soon dissipates when she realizes that her own dwarven coat fits almost perfectly. "'And what exactly were you laughing about there, shorty?' Reuben asks, a sly smile forming across his face. "'Nothing,' Beth replies, sticking out her tongue. "'That's what I thought,' Reuben pats the five-foot girl on the head. Reuben rips the sleeves off the Dwarven-made snowcoat. Removing his military jacket, he stuffs the sleeves inside each arm. Carefully, he slips it back on pushing his arms through the sleeves jacket and pushes the remaining coat-made vest over it. Reuben flips up the woolly mammoth-made collar, his cream-colored vest contrasting against the burgundy it rests on. Each elf gets into formation around the princess, creating a perfect hexagon. Reuben, Beth, and Than stay in the rear of the group while Prince, Sane, and Artisan stay at the front, leading them forward. While scouting the area, Sane notices a large building protruding from the ice and snow. The building appears halfway buried under the snow and seems too large for even the grandeur of the dwarven caves of the mountains of Dwi. The closer they get, the more Reuben and Sane realize it's more of a shelter than an actual home. Upon reaching the large, formidable shelter, all twelve can see what's housed inside, woolly mammoths. Over a dozen mammoths roar inside, each ranging from nine to eleven feet at the shoulder, almost twice as tall as Sane and Artemis. Beautiful creatures, full of power and compassion. A few smaller baby mammoths can also be seen taking shelter from the harsh blizzard that is coming upon them, their small trunks holding on to their mothers as they huddle behind their legs. "'Excuse me, travelers. May I help you?' a booming voice comes from out of nowhere. There, standing atop one of the mammoths, an ice dwarf appears. "'I do believe you look lost. Where exactly is your destination?' "'The capital?' Dwarves rest, actually, Artemis speaks up as all eleven of her company ready their weapons while maintaining their formation. That's priceless. You've found the one and only mammoth tamer on the southeastern border of the lower ice fields, and I think you may be in need of a lift. Actually, we're going to wait for the storm to pass instead, Artemis explained shortly. I see. Don't trust the mammoth tamer now, do you? he asks with a hint of sorrow in his face. "'It isn't that, sir. Rather, we need to get these balloons our form of transportation to the Emperor himself.' Sane steps forward to explain, a slight urgency in his voice. "'Is it urgent?' the ice dwarf asks politely. "'It is,' Sane replies kindly. "'Well, I doubt this storm will be kind to you. It may take a week or two before it passes,' the ice dwarf explains. "'A week or two?' Sane asks, looking back to Artemis, his princess. "'We came early in case of obstacles. We can wait,' Artemis pushes. "'As much as I admire your charisma, princess,' the dwarf then admits, revealing that he does indeed know who they are, "'I believe it would be wise if you were to take me up on my offer, for our lord and emperor, Dirch Kalrich, is currently preparing for war, the same war I'd wager that you are here for.' He's what? Artemis Orlean asks, losing her composure as Sane and her six guards unsheath their weapons, ready to silence the dwarf. Than looks over to Reuben and whispers, This dwarf isn't just any mammoth tamer. Reuben shrugs in response, unsure of his meaning. Than continues to explain, remaining in a low whisper. See the sword at his side? It's made of white ice. Only the great warriors of the king's armies wield weapons of ice. Reuben then steps forward, now understanding the current situation. "'Kind dwarf, you know who we are, and that we seek an audience with your emperor, but we do not know you, nor do we know why a warrior of your emperor's army would stand posted here or offer his services to us.' The ice warrior stops smiling and looks intently at the human of Bursh. "'I do believe you have discovered the truth.' Immediately, several dozen ice warriors emerge from beneath the mammoths fully armored with weapons and shields made of white ice. The ice dwarf, sitting upon the tallest mammoth, speaks up again. We are now at war with the goblins. Who knows who else may join them on their quest of world domination? Artemis then signals for her guards to put their weapons down. We are not here as your enemies. We came in peace "'After all, our two nations are allies, are we not?' she reasons. "'So we've been told. "'We will let you pass, but we will keep your balloons as insurance that you don't run away,' "'the head dwarf explains, as the rest of the warriors step closer. "'All of Artemis's guards draw their weapons at once, but again she dismisses them. "'A few moments pass as she contemplates over her options. "'We have a deal, dwarf,' she finally agrees." Cringing at the way she says dwarf, he hesitates before responding, Then it's settled. We'll take two mammoths and guide you up to dwarves' rest. Artemis and Sane both nod in agreement. Woolly mammoths are not particularly fast-moving animals, and therefore their travel is not quick-paced. But with the storm raging so fiercely, only mammoths can push through it. This time, Artemis has her six royal guards follow on the mammoth behind them with Sane, Reuben, Than, Beth, and Artisan with her instead. An ice-built carriage sits atop both woolly mammoths, housing Artemis's companions inside one and her six royal guards in the other. This crystal box is completely formed of ice, white ice, same as the dwarves' weapons. The carriage shields them from the harsh snowstorm outside, while also providing an odd sense of warmth sitting atop the mammoth's back which doubled as a floor is a large blanket with intricate dwarven designs that tell a story of war although large the carriage is not meant for the seven passengers inside it forcing the group to be slightly cramped but to the mammoth's relief its passengers are lighter than the supplies it is used to carrying sitting outside in front of the ice carriage is the eight passenger an ice warrior trained to navigate through intense storms with artemis sits another ice warrior nor two. With the six guards on the other mammoth is a warrior named Kamik, as well as another navigator. Five days of travel awaits them. Traveling by foot is far too dangerous even for the ice dwarves who have been living in the northern Icelandic for centuries. Obliquous penguins, an extremely dangerous shark tooth species and arctic wolves are all but a few of the unseen threats lurking outside the carriage. Beth sits down next to Reuben as closely as she can, Opening a book, she asks, Should we continue? I would love that, Reuben agrees with a smile of interest. Beth holds the book to where Reuben can try to read along and begins. I first gained this gift when I was a young lad of forty-five. It was then that my wife, at the time, noticed I still appeared as though I was seventeen when comparing my face to an old drawing. At first she thought I just appeared younger than I was, but as she gained wrinkles my face appeared unaged by time she grew jealous of this of course as it is any man's desire to stay young i named this gift the longevity of elves my father alexander bursch had died just four years prior unbeknownst to me he was two hundred and ninety-three years old at his death we were not close as you may have guessed and even as a young man i was reluctant to take his throne I refused still at first, but as I saw the injustices this world holds, I realized I could do more as a king than a good man. But something I didn't realize then was that a good man is far stronger than a powerful king. As time etched on, so did my friends, wives, and children. All of my children held the gift of dragon's blood, but only you two, my sons, have opened its power inside you. It is therefore my belief that all in the Birch family line have this power, but only the truly aspirational among you will open all of its gifts. The next two gifts I received was the stamina of fauns and the speed of goblins. It came to me when my family was in the most desperate situation, for one of the castle's knights had grown mad with passion for my eldest daughter at the time. I was then a hundred and twenty, but appeared as if in my late twenties. A message came to me by Pigeon, and upon reading it I knew my family's life was in jeopardy. At the time I was touring the cities of the kingdom of Bersham with some forty miles from the castle I then called home. Knowing a horse wouldn't be capable of running through the thick, dense forest that separated me and my family, foolishly, I jumped from the moving carriage and ran toward the castle. I arrived there in less than an hour, but I was still too late. FOR THE KNIGHT HAD ATTEMPTED TO FORCE HIMSELF UPON MY DAUGHTER AND WAS THEN KILLED BY HIS OWN DAGGER. AS HAPPY AS I WAS TO SEE MY DAUGHTER ALIVE, A CRUEL HATRED FOR MEN HAD CREPT INTO HER HEART, A HATRED SHE NURTURED AND NURTURED UNTIL HER DEATH, BY WHICH TIME SHE HAD SUCCESSFULLY MURDERED ALL OF HER BROTHERS AND SIX OTHER KNIGHTS. IT PAINED ME TO ORDER HER EXECUTION, BUT AFTER STABBING ME THROUGH THE CHEST WITH MY OWN SWORD I HAD NO OTHER CHOICE. SHE HAD BROUGHT ABOUT THE THIRD GIFT which at this point felt more of a curse, the healing of a dragon. I felt responsible for my daughter's action, for if only I had arrived sooner that day, maybe she would have lived a happy life. But as I moped, my only surviving daughter comforted me with games. chess, checkers, memory, and any other game she could muster. Eventually, game champions from around the world came to play against me, but none were a match. Only the clever gnomes proved successful against me, which was on a rare occasion. Thus my fifth gift was born, the thoughts of gnomes. Then at the age of two hundred and sixty, I met the giants, and realized our hearts were alike, caring and feeling, full of love for the nature around them, and my strength, although not as great as the giants, rivaled that of the dwarves, the heart of giants, and the strength of dwarves. Sons, I tell you these things, because not even in my old age, as I near four hundred years of age, I desire to live longer." Yet, at the same time, I welcome death, because I have seen so much suffering. You may look back upon my rule as the rule of a weak king, but please, Philip, Adrian, see it as not weak, but as a rule of peace. Things happen that are out of even a king's control, but my sons do not take life needlessly, for conflict breeds war, and war breeds death, and you, my sons, are not immortal. If you breed death, Death will come for you. Beth looks over at Reuben, who is mesmerized by the book. Sane looks over to them and asks, Are you reading up on the history of humans? Sort of, Reuben answers vaguely. Well, you might be interested to know, according to the human history books, Adrian Bursch succeeded his father as king after beheading his own brother Philip. Yet, because of this aggression, it seems Adrian was then assassinated by his nephew Hector, who was able to bring about peace after his uncle's ascent to the throne. Always with the beheading, Reuben shakes his head. Humans do seem to enjoy beheading their kings, Sane replies with a chuckle. Are some humans really that powerful? Artemis asks curiously. Sane laughs hard. No, they just fill their history books with myths and legend. They probably lost track of a few of their kings and then gave a few they had recorded longer lives, Sane explains, adding air quotes. Interesting theory, Reuben acknowledges, looking over at Than and then back to Beth, knowing there may be more fact than fiction to Sane's theory. How long do elves live, if I may ask? Most elves live around five hundred years, give or take, Zane responds. My mother, the queen, is almost four hundred years old, Artemis offers. She doesn't look more than thirty for a human, Beth gasps. And yet, you don't think it's possible for a human to live two or three hundred years, Reuben asks. I've never seen it, and as far as elven studies go, they teach that the lifespans of goblins, fawns, merfolk, and humans only range from seventy to a hundred. Gnomes live closer to two hundred years, dwarves and giants around three hundred, and elves around five hundred, but of course, that's just thousands of years of study, nothing too conclusive. Ignoring Sane's attitude, Reuben looks down at his hands and counts the gifts he may have if he is of the line of Bursh. One, the lifespan of elves. Two, the stamina of fauns; Three, the speed of goblins. Four, the healing of dragons. Five, the intelligence of gnomes. Six, the heart of giants. Seven, the strength of dwarves. Reuben recalls using three of the seven so far, healing, strength, and stamina. Beth turns to look at him. Have you displayed any of the gifts Freeman talks about? Than looks at her and shakes his head no, causing Beth to wonder if it's because Reuben doesn't have any of the gifts mentioned or because they shouldn't talk about it here. They're just stories, Reuben tries to convince himself. Beth looks back down toward the book. There's a handwritten section next called The Letter to Edward. We can read the next if you'd like. Edward? Reuben asks. Yeah, Beth confirms cautiously. That was my father's name, I think, Reuben then thinks once again. You don't know your father? Artemis asks. I remember seeing him in a dream, but no, Reuben answers. And your mother? She disappeared along with my father when I was three. Her name was Carolyn Strike, Reuben explains with a solemn look. No, we should finish the part about Freeman first. Nor to. How long until we reach the capital? St. asks. Let's see. Half a day behind us. I'd say sixty hours, or two and a half days, the ice warrior answers as the blizzard ahead thickens. The six of them sit in comfort inside the ice-forged carriage as the blizzard blows on. Nor just outside the front-facing opening, not steering the mammoth but watching for dangers... Blankets cover each seat, keeping them untouched by the cold ice walls. The navigator talks back and forth with Nortu, but what is said can't be heard by the group. Silence fills the carriage for the first time since the trip began. At first, the quiet atmosphere helps the group relax, but as it continues, their minds slowly slip into chaos. So much has been happening in Cortesh with the threat of war looming over Azarus, and this mission is one of the more important tasks, a renegotiating a peace between two of the mightiest nations. Artisan turns to look at Beth. I can't speak for everyone here, but I've actually been enjoying story time. Please continue. Reuben smiles at Beth, who quickly turns red and covers her face in the book. Go ahead, Beth, if you don't mind. All right, where were we? Beth skips through the book before continuing where they left off. I don't think this book is in order. It may just be a random collection of short stories about the kings of Bursh. Well, that's unfortunate, Reuben admits. Everything is easier when it's in order. Might as well keep reading. We aren't getting anywhere fast, Than points out. I do quite enjoy listening to about these kings of humans myself, Artemis adds. Okay, well, the letter to Edward is next. Beth begins. Thank you for listening to The Legend of Azarus, Dragonborn, written by Corey E. Slane. If you like this content, consider buying a physical copy on Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com. Also, you can become a supporter. Support the podcast with a small monthly donation to sustain future episodes. Thanks again for listening, and tune in next time for more chapters of The Legend of Azarus, Dragonborn.